Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. But before I get started, I want to refer you back to the resource guide that Amy was just talking about. Because on page 3, if you haven't looked at it, on page 3 there's a section called Exalting Jesus in Kings. And it's a really neat look at the similarities between Elisha and Jesus. And I'm not going to touch on it. So if you haven't talked about it in your group, I really encourage you to go and look at that page and look at that section. Because it's, it's neat to see those similarities and look at how Elisha really was a forerunner. Of, of Jesus and foretold him. So, with that, I'm going to jump into this week's study. Um, we've been, last, last week and this week, you've studied and read a lot about Elisha and his ministry and all of the people that he ministered to. And I think I'm going to move this away from my face. I feel like I'm... Does that help? Ah, okay, you can still hear me? Okay. Okay. Um, Anyway, so today instead of looking at Elisha and his miracles and a lot about Elisha, I'm just going to touch real briefly on the three people that he interacted with in chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And I want you to look at these three people from the impact of the ministry they had and the ministry Naaman had on them. So we're going to start from that standpoint. And the first person we come to is Naaman. And we see Naaman was given a new ministry. And as you look at and think back at what you read and studied about Naaman, we can go through a series of what most new believers go through that we can see in him. And I'm going to highlight those. But I want you to remember that it all started, his journey all started with what a little servant girl said. And it highlighted the fact that he had a need. And he knew he had a need. He needed to be healed. And with that need, he then began to seek a solution. And when he gets to the king and thinks he's got the solution, the king sends him, well, Elisha says, send him to me. But then Naaman resists it. He hears what God says, but he resists it. He doesn't want any part of it. That's not good enough for him. He's better than that. You name it. He resists. But then he had to trust God. He reached a point where he had to say, I trust you. I'm going to humble myself before you, and I'm going to trust what you say is true. And then he was able to go forth serving God. So if you think about it, almost every believer at some point goes through those steps. And every place along that line, there were interactions with people that led him towards that next step, whether it was his own pagan servants, whether it was the little servant girl, whether it was Elisha, there's always somebody taking you along that step. So as you think about a new ministry and bringing others along into the new ministry, stop and think about Naaman. Where in that pathway might you fit? Then we come to Gehazi, Gehazi, whatever his name is, and the servant of Elijah. And we see that Gehazi's ministry, this is really bugging me. <laughs> Move it down. Okay. Gehazi's ministry had been deteriorating. If you think back to last week, 
when the, you know, the Shunanite woman who had done so much for Elisha and for the servant, given them a place to stay and food and all that kind of stuff, she comes running to Elisha with a need, and Gehazi tries to push her away. We see this gradual decline in how he's been able to be used by God. And then we reach the climax here when it has reached such a point that covet covetousness, greed, has just consumed him. And what happens? You can see on the screen it says that his ministry was revoked. He lost the opportunity to serve God. Um, one of the commentaries put it, the fact that covetousness ate away at his heart. And that became leprosy eating away at his body. And I just thought how true that is. You know, when we allow sin to so consume us, it does eat away at us. And we lose the opportunity to serve. And then the third person that he interacted with was a student. And the student was part of the group of the sons of prophets who were going to go build a new area for them to live in. And he had his axe. He would borrowed an axe to be able to be a part of that ministry. And you, I'm sure you read and talked about the fact that the axe head flew off and Elisha came behind him and put the stick in the water and the axe head rose up. And what to me I saw in that was that God restored that ministry. He took what was lost and restored it. And as we minister ourselves, we have tools and gifts that God's given us. And for various reasons, they can become tarnished, lost, pushed aside, not of use. But we have to remember that God can restore and put us back into ministry. Um, again, one of the commentaries that I was reading about this said, you know, we have to be sure that our axe head is sharp, that it's ready to be used, that we have honed it and worked with it and made it sharp. But secondly, and most importantly, we have to make sure that that tool is firmly embedded in the, in the handle. And for us, that's in God. Are we firmly embedded in him as we work to minister? So as we look at these three men, and we saw that they each had a ministry, something that happened to that ministry, I want to remind you that you have a ministry. Each and every one of you have a ministry that God's given you, a way that you are to serve and to build the body. But in addition, every believer has been given a ministry. And 2 Corinthians phrases it this way. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are to be ministers of reconciliation. Or as Matthew puts it, we're to go and make disciples. That's what we're doing. We're reconciling, helping others to reconcile to God. And as I sort of did last time I was up here, but one of the things that I have gotten into the habit of is when I'm studying a passage and looking at something, I turn around and ask questions of myself because that makes me stop and apply what I'm learning. And so I have questions for you again this week. So as we think about the ministry 
that we're in, that you're in, I want you to think about these questions. Are you reaching out to people like Naaman who are seeking? Remember, Naaman went to the king, and Elisha sent a message to the king saying, send him to me. Elisha reached out. Naaman didn't come seeking Elisha. Are you allowing sin to creep into your ministry or into your serving, causing you to be less effective? We saw that gradual decline in Gehazi. Stop it before it reaches that point. God is the restorer. And then do you no longer feel that you have a ministry, that you've lost the opportunity to serve? Remember, God is the one who restores, and he will bring you back to the place where you can be serving him fully. And that is his heart's desire, is for you to be in that place serving him. So just for you to think about as we leave this section and move on. Because what I really wanted to look at this week is the second part of our study. And from the middle of chapter 6 all the way through, well, pretty much the beginning of 6 through 7, we see the Israelites in a battle. And it's a long-term battle with lots of skirmishes, lots of things going on forever and ever, it seems like. And I know for myself, and I'm sure every one of you will say the same thing, there, you have had battles in the past. You might be having a battle right now. You know there's going to be battles in the future. And how do we handle those battles? And so as I was reading these this scriptures and studying it really came to me that I needed to share about fighting a battle and what has been effective for me. And I'll be honest, years when I was growing up and early adulthood, I really fought the battle of being unloved and unworthy. I did not feel that I fit in anywhere, not in my family, not at school, not with when I was in a job and working. I just felt like I was a, you know, extra thumb out on the edge someplace. And it was only as I got into God's word more and more and began to see who God is and to know God that I learned how much and how important I was in his sight. That I could go to him saying, Abba Daddy, to the dad that loves me and know that I'm accepted. And so that's been a long going, ongoing, and it's, you know, there's still squirmishes now and then, and still Satan tries to get that toehold in. But I also know that my God is the Almighty God, He's Elohim. And I can stand on that fact and know that I'm in His hand and He's got control of me. You know, currently I, I'm like Elisha right now, I'm feeling this battle of discouragement, I'm tired. I'm, for years, I poured my heart and my soul and my love for God into a young man. And he has now just become very angry at God. He blames me and some others around me but the, and our belief in God for everything that's ever gone wrong in his life. We ruined him. We made his life impossible. God is at fault. And I just want to beat my head against the wall going, but God... That's not who you are. Why can't he see that? How does he miss this whole picture? And I'm tired. But I also know that God's in control. He is Elohim. He's the mighty God. He's El Shaddai. He's all-sufficient. And he will meet those needs. 
And so this morning, what I want to look at, because of that, this, this passage from Daniel came to mean a lot to me, that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. The people who know their God. And that's what I want us to look at this morning in fighting our battles. Do we know our God? Can we call him by name? Because there is power in the name. You know, Amy always asks us to talk about the attribute of God that we've seen. And what I want to encourage you to do is not only take that attribute, but think about the name of God that goes with that attribute and call to God by name because I firmly believe that there's power in the name of God. So, with that said, we're going to jump into the text and we're going to look at God within the battle that we see in 2 Kings 6 and 7. So, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 14, we see the God who sees. If you remember, this is a part of the passage where God tells Elisha where the Syrians are, and he tells the king, so the king is always protected and never goes where he needs to go. He is the God who sees. Proverbs 15.3 tells us, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. No matter what is going on, God is the God who sees. He is there, he is watching, and he knows what you're going through. He doesn't. So hang on to that promise. He is the God who sees. And he, that is Jehovah Roy, the God who sees. In verses 15 through 17, we come to the God who protects. And this is where Elisha's servant looks out and sees all the horses and chariots and goes, I'm afraid. <laughs> and God, you know, Elisha answers, calls God to say, let him see. And God shows him not only horses, but chariots of fire. You know, play on words, but there was more firepower out there than those Syrians could ever think about. And that's who our God is. He is the God who protects us. Oh, wait. Yeah. And, you know, those seeing that and being able to look at that and know that that's who was there to protect him gave them strength, gave that servant strength to be able to stand firm. And as we think about bringing that down to us and what it means to us, it took me to Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. And it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and every sin, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race, or fight the battle, I'll paraphrase that in, that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have the protection that we need. We have a focal point. We know who's there. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And in this we see Jehovah Nisi, our banner. That banner, that form that goes ahead of us to stand and give us that focal point, the one that holds us strong. 
He is also Jehovah Ra, the Lord our shepherd. You know, think about Psalm 23 and all that that shepherd does for the sheep, the protection and the guidance and the supplying of his needs. Everything that we need, the Lord our shepherd, our Jehovah Ra, will supply. And then in verses 18 through 23, we see the God who shows mercy. And I don't know about you, but I know when I'm in a battle and I see whoever the other side is getting blessed, I just want to beat my head. <laughs> you know, we don't want to see them get mercy. And yet right here in this passage, we see God showing their enemies mercy. And I looked at, you know, Elisha asking that they be blinded. Elisha could have easily said, kill them, Lord, and he would have. But he asked that they be blinded. And I think that's God showing mercy to the Israelites because if they had killed that, those, that band that had come to capture them, then just more would have come, probably in greater numbers, and there would have been more death on the Israelite side. So even though God showed them mercy, I think in reality, God was showing the Israelites even more mercy. And then he has Elisha take the band to the king, and the king says, what am I supposed to do with him? And he says, feed him. And you think, really? <laughs> More? Feed them? And yet, in, again, the reality of it is God's sovereign. He sees the big picture that mercy in feeding them established a covenant of peace. Because when two warring parties ate together, it, in their culture, it was a covenant of peace. So for a, that established a time of calm for a little bit at least because God is a God of mercy. And as I said, I want to beat my head against the wall, but you know, God is a God of mercy and he expects us to pass it on. We are also to show mercy. And he says it very clearly to us in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no evil, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to be merciful, just as our God is merciful. And the name that goes with that, and it's not one that we normally see or hear, but it's El Rakum. He is the merciful God. Or as those of you who studied Gentle and Lowly last summer, there was a whole chapter on our Father of mercies and how those mercies are new every morning and that there is a mercy for every, everything that we're going through. Our God is a God who shows us mercy. Verses 24 through 33 shows the God who keeps his covenant. Now this, this is interesting because I should tell you that part of this outline came from um, a commentary by Warren Wiersbe. And I, when I came to this one, I went, covenant keeping, wait a minute. Covenants are good. You know, God is a good covenant. He's going to bless them. But you know in that covenant, he also said, if you don't obey, if you don't if you walk away from me as your God, I will curse you. 
And right here, we're seeing the effects of that half of the covenant. We're seeing the military defeat that was promised to them in, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 25 and 26. You walk away from me, if you serve other gods, you're going to have military defeat. We see the consequences of the famine in that was promised in Deuteronomy 17 and 48. If I'm not your God, you're going to be cursed with a famine. So God is a covenant-keeping God. He, will, he promised to bless them when they obeyed and curse them when they walked away. You know, I'm so thankful that we live on the other side of the cross. We still have a covenant-keeping God, but our covenant is different. He promised us the law written on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone. And that covenant was fulfilled when Jesus came to earth and was, was crucified and rose again. And, you know, we can see that just as a reminder to us in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are the daughter of God. You are an heir. And that's our covenant. And he is never going to break that covenant. And the names that just really stand out to me when I think about God being a covenant-keeping God is Jehovah. He is self-existent. He is the great I am. And he is El Shaddai, the strong and powerful God. There is nothing that he can't do to make sure that covenant remains in place. He is El Shaddai, the strong and powerful God. And then chapter 7, we see the God who fulfills his promises. And this is the little bit of the story where the king comes to personally to kill Elisha. And Elisha says, thus says the Lord, wait till tomorrow. <laughs> and that promise, both for the food to be available and for the royal officer not to have, be able to partake of it, were both fulfilled. God keeps his promises. And as we think about it for us, you know, there are two scriptures that lots of times I have to hold on to and remind myself. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The word of God is truth. It's not going to change. It's never, it will always be fulfilled by God. If God says it, he's going to do it. And then 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, Allie reminded us last week of God's faithfulness. He is a faithful God. He is going to keep his promises. And again, this is one we don't hear very often, but man, it spoke to me. I like the, the, I don't know, the poetry of it. El Hanimon. You know, that's the faithful God. Remember that. You can trust him. 
He is a faithful God. So as you think about who God is and how he showed himself to the Israelites, I want you to remember that he shows himself to us today in the same way. And no matter where we're at, we do have battles, don't we? So I want to look at a passage in Ephesians about the battles that was addressed to us as believers because it's on our side of the cross. But Ephesians 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces, forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And as I told you last time, I'm a list maker. And immediately when I read this, my mind made a list. Of, okay, how am I supposed to do this? What are my steps here? And so I want to just highlight, and I didn't do a slide, so you just have to think about it. But first it says, be strong in the Lord. Okay? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, not mine. It's his strength, his might, where we are to stand. Put on the full armor of God. The next six verses in this passage talks about the armor of God. I want you to be aware that of those pieces of armor, every piece of that armor except one is for protection. The only offensive armor, piece of armor, is the sword of God, the word of God. Everything else is strictly for our protection. Put it on, point two. Point three, stand firm. We are not... Yeah, I think about stand firm, and what does that mean? Because, yeah, we sometimes have to fight, but it's not us who's fighting. We're to be led by God. We're to stand firm in our belief. Don't let Satan get that toehold in that's going to pull us down. Stand firm in what you believe, knowing you're God. Stand firm in who God is. And then for remember who we're battling. It's not the person next door that made you angry. It's not the circumstance. Who are we battling? The battle is really against Satan. And therefore, that's why we can't fight him on our own. The battle is the Lord's. So think about that as, we, as you're facing battles. What do you need to do? Be prepared. Put on that armor. Give it to God. It's his strength. Stand firm. And it's really interesting because when we face a battle, I think we're just like Gehazi's servant. The first thing we do is, I'm afraid. You know, fear steps in. Fear is always that sort of motivating expectation, anticipation. We anticipate it being awful, and that's what fear is. And I think it's very interesting that the most frequent or common command throughout the entire Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not. You know, several different iterations. But that is the most common command. It's, it's stated over 120 times throughout the Old and New Testament. God knew we were going to be fearful. But he also said, because almost every time where he says that, he also tells you how not to be afraid. The other part 
I thought really interesting is the fact that over 10% of the time that that do not fear is followed by don't be discouraged. Because fear and discouragement really go hand in hand. Lots of times we start with this discouragement that leads to fear or the fear leads to discouragement. You know, they go hand in hand. And um, one of the statements that I read here too, which I thought, okay, this, this makes me put it in perspective. Um, the opposite of discouraged is encouraged. So, you know, when we get discouraged, how do we encourage ourselves or get, have others encourage us? And maybe that's where we as part of our ministry need to be, encouraging others who are discouraged. And then when you look at the fact that encourage, encouraged means to be filled with courage. And so when we can be filled with the courage, you know, because lots of times with the do not fear, God also says be courageous, be strong and courageous. So, you know, they really go hand in hand to be courageous, to stand firm. And so I thought we're going to take a few minutes to look at fear and some of the names of God that goes with that. Um, this last summer at camp, our theme was fearless. And I wore my shirt for that reason, fearless. And we took a verse from Isaiah 41 and looked at what it said about fear to communicate to the campers and what it said about our God so that they did not, could be fearless, could walk without fear. So let's look at Isaiah 41. Okay, I'm make sure I didn't get off the slide. Do not fear. Look at the reasons. For I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. Don't get discouraged. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So I want to give you a few more names of God to think about when you look at don't fear based upon Isaiah 41. The first thing we come across is the fact that he is with us. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. We all have the Holy Spirit indwelling with us, indwelling in us. I mean, how much more with us can you get? God is with us. But then in the second line, it says that I am your God. And what do we know about the fact that he's our God? And don't be discouraged. Well, Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. You guys know this, don't you? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He is our Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. He's, he is with us. He is our God. And then Jehovah. Jehovah is the... He's everything we could ever need. That's all sufficient. And I'm going to give you a homework assignment at some point in time that I would encourage you to do. I want you to look and read through, Psalm, through Isaiah 43 and Psalm 121. Neither one of them are very long. But Isaiah 43 and Psalm 121. As you read through those, make a list of all you see about God and how he is for you and with you and what he is doing for you. It will boggle your mind when you actually stop and be able to see 
this list in a concise place of all that our God is. We don't have to fear when we have a God like that. He is our Jehovah, the all-sufficient, the self-existent one. And then in verse line 3 of Isaiah 41.10, it says, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. And there are so many names of God that go right into that, into the strength and the provision. Um, he's Jehovah Elohim, the mighty one. You know, Elohim, just the, that's the reference to his might and power. Elohim, God most high, Lord of lords, king of kings. He is the God most high. He's El Shaddai, the all-sufficient. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He is all these things. And because he is, we can stand firm on his promise that he made in Romans 8.39. Nothing's going to separate us from him. And then the last line in the Isaiah 41.10 says that, surely, he will uphold, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we saw where with the new covenant, we have the righteousness of God. And this verse, this, this statement makes me think of Moses. And when they're fighting the battle, and Aaron and her come alongside of him and hold his hands up. And I picture God just right there beside me, just holding my arms up, holding me up when I'm tired and discouraged and can't fight anymore. He's doing it. And the name that is that, it's Jehovah T Sidkenu. I want to put the T in there and it's not it's Sidkenu. And that he is our righteousness. He is right there to uphold us and to keep us strong. You know, no matter what we're going through, I want you to remember that the battle is the Lord's. And this is just a quick review slide Whoops, I went, went too far. Never mind, let me go back. Quick review slide of what we saw in Kings about who God is. You know, he is Jehovah Ra. He's the God who's Roy, the God who sees. He's a Jehovah Ra, the shepherd who, who meets every need. He is El Rakum, the God of mercy. He's Jehovah, the one who is everything. And is El Haniman, that faithful God. And so, just to close, as you think through, I've got your questions for you. Where are you fighting a battle where the Lord wants to deliver you himself? Where are you relying on yourself instead of saying, I don't know what to do but my eyes are on you. Where are you not listening to God and his plan for your deliverance? Where are you complaining instead of praising? And where is fear keeping you from doing what God has for you? Turn to God. Know who he is. Be specific and call to him by name. He is everything we need to stand firm without fear 
and to see the battle won. Oh, Abba Daddy, you are the Father who loves us, the Father who cares for us, and the Almighty God, our El Shaddai. You are the faithful God, and we can trust you. And so, Lord, we just give our battles to you right now, knowing that you are Jehovah. You are God, and that you are in control, and that we can trust you. We give all praise and honor and glory to you, because you are our God. Amen.